Welcome to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. This is our attempt to speak the gospel out of every corner of Scripture. We believe every part of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is about Jesus. And this podcast is our experiment to publicly test that belief. Let's jump in. Well, welcome. Welcome. We have a very special episode for you today. Numero 50. Cinque Senta. <laughs> there you go. I was like, numero 50. <laughs> Cinque Senta is not right. Cinque Senta. Cinque Senta? Is that right? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. Should we look it up? Is it that important? It's probably pretty important. It's probably really important yeah. that we know this in Spanish. How? Because that's the first language our podcast is being translated in. It is? No. Just, oh, man. I was just trying to make an announcement. <laughs> How do you say 50 in Spanish? Here it is. Cinque Senta? Cinquenta. I was right. Cinquenta. Cinquenta. I had, had a lot of the right letters. Yeah. And that's not the only reason why this is an important episode. This is also an important episode because Seth is moving to Kansas City. That's right. And so this is our last podcast to do in studio together. I know. At least until well, I Well, I mean, visit. we'll do visits. Yeah. yeah, yeah but, but it'll all be across the internet. Yeah. So he's got his, po- his podcast mic set up. Over here on the floor, I'm pointing it to it, yeah. and you're going to take it with you to Kansas City so know, we can record. And our friendship will never uh, die. No, it will never die. Because and so we'll always be talking to each other. That's right. <laughs> so what are you doing in Kansas City? So I'll be uh, taking a job as the Associate Pastor of Students and Families at Redeemer Fellowship. I'm very excited about yeah. the job um, a lot. It's just a, a big church, a lot of new opportunities, room for growth, room for all sorts of stuff. So it's just... It's a big deal, and it's I'm awesome. really excited. I'm excited for you. So hopefully we'll gain some Kansas City listeners. Yeah. If, uh, you, if you're if you a Kansas City listener already, and you want to get coffee with Seth when he comes to Kansas yeah, City, reach I'm out a, to us. Yes, that would be awesome. Know. I would love that. Yeah. So, okay. Well, it's also a special episode because we get to look at Numbers 20 and 21, which is any time you get to look at the Bible is really special. So, um, well done, Pastor David. Thank you. <laughs> it's like classic. This is my Jesus juke. A classic dad moves like yeah. every time you open the Bible. Every time you open the Bible, it's it's a special moment, <laughs> it's a son. Special, son. <laughs> Ezra. <laughs> Ezra, my son. So in chapter 20, we're just going to do two chapters, chapter 20 and chapter 21, and it essentially tells us the story of Israel at Kadesh traveling to the border of Canaan. That's the entire story. It's just getting to the border of Canaan. Yep. Um, so... Yeah, it might be important to note it to note that like it seems like in these two chapters, um, time just kind of flies. Like the entire forty years in the wilderness basically takes place here. Takes place between <laughs> the verses nine and ten. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was listening to another podcast about this. It's called Forty Minutes of the Old Testament. It's oh, great. Yeah. You should listen to it. Uh, I was telling my listeners, not, not our me. listeners. Oh, okay. Everybody including you listening. People eavesdropping in on our conversation. Right. Should listen to the 40 Minutes in the Old Testament podcast. And they were saying that's just authorally intentional because what happens when you're in the wilderness for 40 years? Mm. Nothing. Nothing. So that's why it passes by in the space of a verse. Like It's like there was nothing there. The Lord was not silent, but like we have no recordings from that time period. They were just wandering. They were just wandering in the desert. So that's why it just passes. Yeah. Crazy. And that would make for really bad <laughs> literature. <laughs> really compelling. <laughs> yeah. Reading. What would yeah the the action story action movie of the book of Numbers would turn into a horrible 
boring travel documentary. So the big picture of what's happening yes. is what I'm calling the slow implosion of a dying star. <laughs> I've been calling it this since last week. Since last week. And so b- from all the way back, several um, chapters now in Numbers, we've had the concentric circles of holiness that have been right. set up. Yep. At the beginning of, of Numbers, God arranged the camp. Right. In concentric circles of holiness. Right? Yes. And so you had the nations surrounding Israel. Mm-hmm. You had Israel itself. Yep. Arranged by tribe around north, south, east, and west. Then you had the tribe of Levi mm-hmm. around the tabernacle. And Perform- then, like They were like a holy barrier. And then you had Moses and Aaron inside the Levites acting as the priest and the king yep. of Israel. At like the door of the tent. And then you had, in the very center, you had God's presence. Right. In like the Holy of Holies. And one by one... Each one of those categories has failed to obey the Lord. So we had the rabble, mm-hmm. the nations failed to obey the Lord. They and grumbled. They in, grumble in and like number in chapter eleven, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. And they distrust the Lord, right? And a plague comes, mm-hmm. and Moses has to intercede for them. The next inner ring comes. The Israel grumbles and complains. Another plague comes. Moses has to intercede. The Levites at Korah's rebellion grumble and complain and disbelieve, and Moses has to intercede. Now, mm-hmm. the question is, will the leadership hold up? Right. Or will they disbelieve too? Yeah. Will this uh, will this disobedience spread like the flu or a plague all the way into the center of the camp? And you probably know the answer. The answer is no. That the, This is why I'm calling it the slow implosion of a dying star. <laughs> like every circle is just collapsing in on itself. Right. But what's been fascinating is that the mixed multitude, the nations, the Israelites, the Levites have always had a mediator to go back on. Mm-hmm. There's always been somebody to go to God for them to pray and intercede. And this is the whole cycle of the book of Numbers. Right. Yes. But what happens when there's no one left to intercede? Mm. What happens when Moses and Aaron are dead? What happens when Moses and Aaron disobey? Right. Who intercedes for the interceders? Right. Who watches the watchman? Who watches the watchman? <laughs> And so that's kind of what I, the question that you'll end up asking here. And what's fascinating is the cycle that we've seen over and over and over again of grumbling, of laws, grumblings, punishment, intercession, uh, intercession is broken here yep. because there's no one left to intercede. Right. After we, we, Moses yeah. and Aaron disobey. Yep. There's no, no intercession. There's just the punishment comes and there's nothing to be done about it. They just have to accept it. Yeah. So we'll get there we'll in get the narrative. There. But that's but, what's ha- that's what's happening. The yep. slow implosion of a dying star. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and then it's supernovas. Yeah. And there's also an irony here too, is that all the way up until now, um, Israel and the rabble and everyone and the, the priests, they've all been coming and attacking Moses' leadership and Aaron's leadership. And they've been saying, You guys are unfit to lead. You should let other people lead. And God has again and again and again said, No, these are the people I've chosen. And then in this ironic twist, we find out that, oh, Moses and Aaron aren't the perfect leaders. Right. They are humans and they're sinful, just like everyone else. Yeah. And so you kind of have like all that's left is God in the middle of the of the, of the the camp and no one can exist near him. It's kind of like what was said by the those the, the, the rebels, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. everyone who comes near the tabernacle of the Lord perishes. Are we all to perish? Are we all to die? Right. Comes true even of right. the leaders. So it is it is like the slow implosion of a dying star. I Thanks. like that. Thanks for uh, borrowing my language. Yeah, I just stole it. So verse 20, 20 verse 1, Miriam dies. Miriam's dead. This is, this is Aaron and Moses' sister. Mm-hmm. And She's been acting kind of a, as a prophetess for Israel. Yep. Yep. Uh, was she one of the 70 elders for Israel? I don't know. Or is she just a prophetess? Oh, or I don't she know. both? Anyway, know. Yeah. somebody 
email Somebody us. look that look that up. Um, but she was well respected in the community. Mm-hmm. She early on, right after they left Sinai, she thought she should lead alongside Aaron. Right. Aaron and her approach Moses, and they're like, "Hey, why why are you the only one to lead? We should get to lead." And then Miriam is the one that is struck with leprosy, not right. Aaron. Aaron kind of gets a free pass there. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, whoa, like, was yeah. that, like, what? why did Miriam get punished and not and not Aaron? Maybe because Miriam's the one who, like, incited, like. voice the complaint. Right. Yeah. She was also at the Red Sea Crossing. She was singing, potentially leading the song. Mm-hmm. As uh, a prophetess as might. As a prophetess, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Um, and so the point here is that now the question is, will the center hold? Will right. the leaders of Israel fail as the rest of the people have. And we don't really get any, we know that Miriam's already failed. Right. But I think what Miriam's death does is foreshadow the yes. fact that death is coming for the leaders. Yep. It's yeah. like if there's three people at the center, the first the first one just died. Third in command just died. It's making its way up the chain. Right. So yep. then we get into kind of one of the big stories of the yes. Old Testament. One of the, one of the big stories and one of the most, like, I, I want to say misunderstood, not in the sense that I understand it, but in the sense that it is difficult to grapple with and yes. to understand. So yeah. that's the w- story of the waters of Meribah. Mm-hmm. There's no water for the congregation, and they assemble themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Yep. And they grumble that there's no water. Right, which is a legitimate complaint. It is. People need water to live. Yeah, but isn't it interesting that it's the exact same, almost the exact same complaint as all the way the be- at the beginning of the wilderness? Oh, they're still grumbling. They're still grumbling. Yeah, I don't, think, like I don't think Israel's complaint. off the hook here. Yeah, <laughs> but we don't hear God um, like condemning them as as he normally does. That is does. interesting. That's, isn't like, this yes. is the one place where grumbling is not met with. Right. Uh, actually, it's more like the book of Exodus mm-hmm. where they're complaining. It's a, it's a then, mirror of that story in the book then, of Exodus. And then God gives them mm-hmm. what they what need. What they need. Mm-hmm. Which is just to show God's God's grace and mercy. Um, he he's he's he sustained these people for all this time, you know. And like when people need water, sure, maybe the older or the younger generation. We don't know who's grumbling here, but we do know that everyone needs water. And if he's right. going to bring the younger generation into the promised land, he doesn't want them to die, so he's going to provide them with water. Right. And so, really, the issue here, as we've worked our way into like the center of Israel's camp from the concentric circles outside inside, what we see here is this is not necessarily a story about Israel and their sin and their grumbling. Although this is a story maybe about this Moses. Was somewhere else, maybe it could be. It could be, but we know by, by the literary right. structure, and then even beyond that, what does the text focus on after this? Moses. It, yeah, never condemns Israel it's for this. It's Moses. all about Moses and Aaron, and so we really don't have to figure out whether what their intent was here, like if it right. was we bad or not. They're grumbling, but like that's not the point. No, the it just point is started that's the this. context. It's the context, for, yeah, for which Moses it, yeah, it is teed about. up this narrative. Moses is going to be tested. That's in right. His leadership. Yep. And so God tells Moses to uh, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water, and it will bear fruit. God also tells them bear to bring fruit. Oh, not bear fruit. <laughs> It will uh, bring it, forth water. Bring, bring forth water. You just threw out a, a Christian colloquialism. I was thinking about the staff bearing, oh, bearing the, almonds. The almonds. And so he's supposed to go in the temple and grab a, a, a staff Yeah, as it well. could be his staff that he's been using the whole time, or it could have been the budding staff of Aaron. We yes. don't know. And then Moses and Aaron gra- gather all the people together. Mm-hmm. And now what's fascinating is Moses is far angrier than God ever was. Yes. Like he starts yelling at the people saying, you rebels, right. am I going to bring water out of this rock for you? Yep. And then he takes his staff and he slams the rock twice and then water comes out of the rock. But the Lord passes a judgment on the way that Moses behaved. Mm-hmm. And this is the only explanation. There's a lot. Okay. So we're going to pause right here. Okay. This is wrong what Moses did. Yep. 
but nobody really knows why. Right. It could be because God told him yep. to speak to the rock. And, and he, he didn't struck do it. it. Yep. Some people think that it's because uh, maybe because he said we yep. struck the rock. Are we to bring water from this? Saying that like you want like we we're able to and right. like, like it's me, it's me and Aaron God. that have the power. But yep. the point but none of that is ever clarified. And that might be part of the point, like the Cain and Abel story. You're yes. not supposed to know exactly how they disobeyed, right. except that they are. But besides that, God tells us why he's uh, acted poorly. And he says this, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me yep. to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people, therefore you shall not bring them into the assembly. It's the same sin. Disbelief. That, <laughs> disbelief. It's Distrust. the same sin. The uh, the Israelites did not believe that God was powerful enough to bring them into the land of Canaan, and so they were punished. Uh, the Levites did not believe that God had ordained Moses and Aaron to be their leaders, and so they were punished. And now Moses is not believing something about God, uh, and 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 he's punished for it. And so the point is not, well, what was Moses' sin? I really got to right. figure that out. The point is... Everyone is disbelieving in yeah. the God of Israel. If you want to spend more time in here and meditate on it, you should be. Thin- you should like like that we talked about in the story of Cain and Abel. The fact that it's ambiguous is intentional. Yep. Because if you are a person in leadership or leading your family or leading anybody as a disi- like as a disciple discipling somebody else, you should be asking yourself critically: Have I failed to uphold the Lord as holy. Mm-hmm. And how might I have done that? If I follow the Lord's commands correctly, right. do I assume I can change this person rather than not? You should be asking those questions. But that's not the point here. The point is, is Moses believing? And the answer is no, no. he's yeah. not. And what's fascinating, I read this um, in my favorite man, Sailhammer. <laughs> my favorite man. <laughs> the Pentateuch's narrative. Yeah. And he said, what's fascinating is that Israel is not being condemned for breaking the law, but for disbelief. Mm. And like throughout, that's really interesting. And throughout the narrative, that's actually maintained being true. Like yep. over and over again, we'll have long sections of obedience, but whenever they break God's trust, like it's always the sin of disbelief. Wow, not necessarily breaking the law, which I thought was a fascinating little that's thing. Really fascinating because like grumbling isn't breaking the law. No, it's distrusting the one right. who made the law. Yeah, when we think about the Torah, we think about law codes, right? And we think about don't break the law codes, right? And it's like, like maybe the one instance we have is building the golden calf. Yes, 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 right. Yes. That's a direct violation violation of, of one of the of one of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, but yeah, here it's just like disbelief. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, God's after our hearts. It is. You know, God's after our belief and our trust in Him, and ultimately, that's what is the most offensive sin that we can commit is disbelief in Him, and that's. Ultimately, when we get to Jesus, what he requires of us yeah. is belief. Trust me. Trust me. Yeah. And so I, I was thinking about this, though, with this sin of Moses, and I was trying to meditate on it this morning. And I was like, man, it's such an ambiguous sin, and it's hard. What were his motives? And it seems murky. And I was like, oh, like, you know, you and I were in a discipleship group together for yeah. years, and we confessed sin to each other. And oftentimes, that's what it feels like when we're trying to be like, what was behind my action here? Right. Like, my motives... Let's get behind it. Yeah, my yeah. motives seemed murky, and I feel like part of it was good, but part of it was bad, and it, I like, couldn't I, quite get to the sin. These people have over and over and over and over again said the same thing to me, and I'm just tired of it. Right. Like, so it feels like my response is justified, but at the same time, yeah. the Lord told me to speak to the rock, and I hit it. Like, which one? Yeah, but the water still came out. And like, yeah. <laughs> it just feels like very human. You yeah. know, it feels yeah, yeah, it yeah. feels very much like, oh yeah, that is what it's like whenever I sin. 
is it doesn't just feel like cut and dry black and white. There's often these mixed motives and and yet the sin is still real right. and deserving of punishment. And anyway. So if we're seeing the concentric circles mm-hmm. fail. Oh right. Yep. Disobedience, disbelief, disbelief, distrust, distrust, distrust. You now have the king of the people, yep. the one who is supposed to provide for everybody, failing. And the intercessor, the high priest. He's about to die in yep. just a moment. All the leaders are about to die. And all that's left is God in the middle. <laughs> I think which is so one, like we need to think about that, but God provides. So all the layers fail, mm-hmm. including the leaders, and God still provides water for them, right? Oh, yeah. So it's like at the mm-hmm. end of the disobedience, God is still faithful to provide for his people even when the leader fails. Yeah. So I think at the end of the day, this is what Paul picks up on mm-hmm. in this story, is not the fact that Jesus is a better intercessor than Moses, and we talked about that last week. Right. We actually, Paul picks up on the fact that Jesus is the water from the rock. Yeah. That Jesus provides for his people even when the leaders have failed. Yes. Do you have the verse right there? Yeah, I do. And so uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 is kind of walking through the the Exodus story and then the wilderness wandering. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm going to read three verses or so. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, so these people we're reading about, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So this is the Exodus story. They were led by the cloud, they passed through the Red Sea, and they were all, in a sense, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then they went into the wilderness, right? And they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank, and here it is, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So there's a few things happening here. He's saying... There's this Jewish tradition that um, Paul was probably aware of that you can go and read about in some of the rabbinic literature that um, it was believed that there was this rock that yeah. actually followed the people of Israel throughout the wilderness, like floating like a floating rock, and you and it and w- and it was that that provided water wherever right, they right. went, and I, and he's saying that that floating rock was actually Jesus. Right, right, right. <laughs> I think I don't. I'm not sure about the floating rock hypothesis. I like how he said, like, in the very beginning of the wilderness wandering, they complain, yep. and there's water from a rock. And at the very end of their wilderness waterings, oh, there is right. uh, another rock, right. and it's water comes from another rock. And so yep. it's like the whole wilderness watering, wanderings, waterings, yeah. wanderings, <laughs> wanderings is bookended by water from a rock. Yep. It's like it, it followed them, them everywhere. It followed them everywhere. Yeah. Like, it's God's faithfulness is on right. either side of the wilderness. You could, you could also think about if it's a spiritual rock, right? Right. A, a breath rock you know, that kind of goes wherever it needs to go. There's rocks all over the wilderness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this spiritual rock, this invisible rock, this provision of God could go into any physical rock. Oh, yeah, yeah, You know, yeah, 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 and yeah. make it a spiritual one and make it right. spring water out of... Possess a rock. Possess a rock. <laughs> and so, uh, anyway, it's, it's interesting to think about that. Uh, but regardless of the actual <laughs> reality of how this took place, we're talking about a lot of different miracles anyway in this in this story. Um, but he's saying that the, the, the thing that provided water from a rock was Jesus. Mm. He is the one that was struck and water came out of. Yeah. Or that he was spoken to and water came out of. And so, like, what are we supposed to see here? You kind of mentioned it a little bit, but you're saying that Jesus provides for us even whenever we have, like, no no yeah. reason to be provided for? Or what were you saying? I think that's part of it. I think, like, if you have if you have the wilderness wandering bookended by provision of water mm-hmm. and it comes through striking the rock, yeah. like, we do have a picture of Jesus yes. who is struck 
by a sword and water comes from his side, right? Jesus himself says he is the living water to the Mm -hmm. woman at the well and she's thirsty and she needs water. And Jesus's message to her is come drink from the water of life. And you'll never thirst again. And you'll never thirst again. So like- Your wandering will be over. Yes. So Mm -hmm. like there is, what's happened for Israel and the physical provision of thirst is what Jesus does for us spiritually. Right. And I think there's also promises embedded in there. Like if you are listening to this on a cell phone in the middle of Kenya, not with no access to water, right, yeah. there are real, like if you don't have access to water, the Lord provides for your daily needs. He yeah. provides for provides for your daily bread. But for all of us, whether or not we live in abundance or not, the Lord provides water for us mm. when we trust him to. Yeah. And so like Moses was- Oh, that's good. Yeah. Like, right? Yeah. This is, yeah. So this leans into belief or disbelief. Right. Where it's like, well, okay, if God provides us with spiritual water that quenches our deepest needs and that we'll never again thirst again, our wanderings will be over, we'll be with him satisfied. How do we get that rock? Or, you know, how do we get that water from that rock? Belief. Belief. We trust. trust that he is that. Moses didn't need to Moses strike the Moses didn't, yeah. Mm-hmm. Didn't need to strike the rock. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He just needed to trust that mm-hmm. the wa- water would come from the the rock and it would have yeah the fact that he strikes it tells us that that's actually the only way we get the water Mm -hmm. is once christ the rock is struck for us that's actually the only way israel finally will be able to call and trust on the lord is if the lord is sacrificed for them because their hearts are hard Mm. their hearts are always stuck in a pattern of distrust the center never holds the whole nation has imploded like a dying star and nobody can trust the lord If we're going to trust the Lord again, we're going to have to have that different spirit that Mm. Caleb had or the spirit that the 70 elders had to send upon them. The Lord will actually have to give us a new heart. Like Rivers of living water will need to flow not into us but from us in order for us to trust the way that Moses never did that's or right. did not at the yeah. end. And that's what John picks up on. The the livers, the livers. Oh, that's what Sam, <laughs> the Sam, <livers. laughs> Sam, our lead pastor, I was having him on the Bridgeway podcast and he said the livers of of living water too. <laughs> uh, so he, he's not the only one. But yeah, the rivers of living water that um, that John talk, that Jesus talks about in, in John is linked to the Holy Spirit that comes and flows through us and gives us a new heart. So yeah. I think you're absolutely right to link those two that what will take us away from this disbelief it is the fact that when we look to Christ and trust him as our rock, that these rivers of living water come into us and give us the heart that we need to actually obey the new spirit of Caleb, the Holy Spirit within us that actually leads us away from disbelief and into belief. So the next thing that happens that after uh, Moses disbelieves in the Lord, mm-hmm. they send messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom, who are the descendants of Esau. So this is important Very because important. Esau and Jacob were brothers yep. back in the day. And both of them received new names. Yes. Esau was renamed Edom and Jacob was renamed Israel. Yes. So now Jacob and Esau are meeting again, but yes. they're Edom and Israel. Yeah. yeah. So it's like an old sibling, old siblings that yeah. now turn into nations are coming back together. Right. And so Moses knows this and so he kind of is making a treaty with Edom to pass through their land. Right. And that's kind of, that is should throw us back to Genesis because that's what happened. Jacob tried to make a treaty with Esau before they even met. He sent like this parade of gifts and, 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 and um, Esau had his huge army with him. And so it's very similar what's, what's happened. But if you remember in that story, they met and they embraced and everything, there was reconciliation and it was beautiful. Yes. But that's not what happens here. Not so here. What ends up happening is they, after repeated attempts to go through their land, 
Esau just says no. Mm-hmm. And they send a huge army against Israel. Right. And Moses is not allowed to go through the land. Now, this should, again, trigger some reminder bells for you. Because back in 14, when the 12 spies go into the land and they come back and everybody complains, Israel has this moment of a lack of faith and they decide not to go back into the land. And what immediately follows, the Amalekites come out and destroy Israel. Mm. And here, Moses complains against the Lord, or there's a complaint again about water. Right. Moses disbelieves in the Lord and a huge army comes out and does not allow them to enter into oh, the land. Oh, right. So yep. the same type of disbelief that happened to Israel on the border of Canaan is being paralleled here. Yes. Moses has not believed the Lord and he's not allowed to enter the land because yeah. of it. It's also really interesting too, if you're thinking, if you're taking this in, in kind of a meta level where you're like, uh, God chose Jacob over Esau, mm-hmm. you know, but now we see that he's kind of protecting Esau and rejecting Jacob. You're right. Like not covenantally. I'm not right. saying like throughout the Bible. For, there's just irony here. There's just irony here that's taking place that it's like Esau's protected and Jacob's abandoned. It's kind yeah, of yeah. the opposite that's happening here. So it's just an interesting meta detail to, to think about. So the point of this little excursus about Edom is that Moses has failed the same way Israel has. The mm-hmm. center is not held. The leaders of Israel are not adequate intercessors. They disbelieve right. just as much as Israel, just as much as the Levites. They're in rebellion just as much of the nations of the earth. Yeah. And it's here, we have one intercessor left, the intercessor of intercessors, Aaron, the high priest. Yep. And he goes up on a mountain and he dies. That's right. Yeah. And so this is part of the punishment that came to Moses and Aaron whenever they struck the rock and water came out. Both Moses and Aaron are punished. And, it, and God says to them that they will not enter the promised land. They will die in the wilderness like the older generation. And you might be thinking like, I thought Moses did most of the sinning in, in, right, in right, the narrative. Right, right. Why is Aaron looped into this? And it's kind of a repeat of what happened with Miriam and Aaron. Whereas like Miriam yeah. and Aaron come and they are both, you know, voicing a complaint against Moses um, earlier in Numbers but and Miriam. only Miriam is punished. Right. And here it's like Moses and Aaron are sinning, but now Aaron is punished. And so we kind of get, you know, Aaron finally gets his, you know, in a sense. And so um, they go up this mountain and um, it's Moses, Aaron, and Eleazar, um, Aaron's son. And they they have all the priestly garments that we read about, like how they're supposed to be made in Exodus and everything like that. They have them. And these are the vestments of the high priesthood. Right. And they are taken off Aaron and put on Eleazar. And then Aaron dies. And what this this moment is so important for several reasons. One of which is that this is a changing of the guard yeah. from the old generation to the new generation. So we should expect that right here there's a changing of the guard from the old generation to the new generation. We're probably here near the end of the time that God promised punishment on the older generation. And now we should expect that something new is going to happen. So what you're saying is this whole time in the book, we're told back in Numbers 14 mm-hmm. that because they disobeyed uh, at the border of Canaan and then the Canaanites came out and killed them, like you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, one day for every day that we're spying out the land. Right. That time is coming to an end. Yep. And so we see that in the fact that one of the first people of the new generation is actually being elected to one of the offices of the land. Exactly right. Okay. The center is changing. Right. Which is really interesting. It's like it's changing from the inside out. The concentric right. circles are starting in the middle again, and the new yeah. generation is starting right at the tent of the door. The center did not hold mm-hmm. first time around, right. and so it's time to see if the, the experiment can ha- yeah. work this time. Right? Can 
we supernova back out to the nation that we're su <laughs> supposed to be as we've died as the stars imploded on itself. Yeah. And so um, there's a couple things that we I just want to like zoom out real quick before we look to the new generation because that's what's about to happen in the next story. Um, first off, with this refusal um, of Edom, like the refusal to enter right, right, right. through Edom and this irony of God protecting Esau and rejecting Jacob, this this might be a controversial way to say this, but this is a foreshadowing of um, the new covenant in Christ, where not all Israel is true Israel, where the nations will be brought in um, yes. at the expense of some of the Jews who reject Jesus. Those who reject uh, God will not be included just by their birthright, and there's, there's going to be favor for those who believe. Yeah, even if we don't necessarily know that, I think you're right, like Israel within Israel, they're are hopefully faithful people yes. within the new generation. And Definitely. Eleazar yep. is like the first fruits of that. He's like right. the first potential proof of that. But also you have these hints that the nations are included in this concentric circle mm -hmm. and they're not left out of it because they're the first ones where the center does not hold. Right. They're like the disbelieving outer ring, but they're still included in the storyline of salvation. Like mm -hmm. they're still part of the narrative where God is in the center of not just Israel, but actually the whole world. Right. So like, yes, I think you're yeah. probably right. Because when we read about this in Deuteronomy 2, um, Edom is talked about uh, there as Moses is recounting what happened in the book of Numbers, and God shows concern for Esau. He shows protection for Edom. And he says, like, don't hurt anything in their land. You know, like, if you end up drinking any water, pay for it. If you take any food, pay for it. He's protecting Edom which is not the people that he said were going to be his people. And so it just shows that God's concern has always been for the nations. And so in the new covenant under Jesus, that's what we see is it's that those who put their faith in Jesus are brought into God's protection, you know, and like, and, and Israel has not been putting their faith in God. And so they are not brought into his protection. They're not given passage to the promised land, you know, through Edom. Yeah, God is never just concerned with Israel. Right. God's plan has always included the nations. Yes. It's seen the fact that there are mixed multitudes in the wandering tribe. It's the, seen the fact that there's one law for the sojourner and the native. Mm -hmm. It's seen in the fact that God's protecting Esau, yep. uh, staying true to covenants previously made with right. past generations. And we see it here. That's exactly right. Yep. We also see Jesus in like the succession of priest, of priesthood. Yes. So we have this moment where uh, you have one spirit-filled person, uh, Aaron, passing his vestments, his priestly wardrobe, mm -hmm. to another spirit-filled representative, Eleazar, who will act as intercessor for the people. Right. So we already said, I think, that he's like, this is the new inner ring. This is the new center yep. for the people. Like The first ring failed. So maybe if we rebuild it from the center, it'll work. <laughs> right. Like, yep. that's the hopefully the hope. Yes. But we, what we see there is like there is a succession. When one priest dies, mm -hmm. a new priest takes his place. This is exactly what we get in like that makes sense of why we all become we become a nation of priests mm -hmm. in Jesus Christ. Right. Jesus Christ is our priest, and when he dies, he clothes us with robes of righteousness, yep. but he makes us a nation of priests because we are filled with his spirit. Yes. So what happens for one person <laughs> yeah. in numbers happens for every believer right. after Christ. Which is what Moses wanted to happen when everyone was filled with the spirit. He's like, I wish everyone was filled with the spirit. I wish everybody was prophesied. I wish yeah. everybody could be priests yep. to the Lord. Yep. And it happens in Christ. That's right. Yeah. The, our high priest dies in order to make priests of us all. Yes. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So, so the new generation has come. 
uh, or is starting to come. There's still a yeah. little bit left of the old generation. They're they're about to have two more big things happen to them that finishes them off. And uh, so, but now we have a majority of the camp is now the new generation. And we and with the switching of Eleazar for Aaron, we see the tide start to turn. Yes, good things start to happen. And so, um, in in the same place where Israel, after denying or refusing to go into the promised land, in that same place, if you remember earlier, yeah, where yeah. they went in and tried to take this little city, Canaanite city, by right. force, but God wasn't with them, and right, so they, right, were, right. They, they died and were driven out. They go back to the same place, and they actually ask God if he will give mm-hmm. them the land. God says yes, and so they go in and they actually take Arad, uh, which is then renamed Horma, which means destruction, which was ironic the first time, right? That were because it was Israel that was destroyed, but now it's their enemies that are destroyed. Oh, fascinating! And so they do that in Hosea too. Oh, do they? In Jezreel is this place of destruction, uh-huh. but it becomes this place of redemption. Mm. Like he renames it. Yeah. And it's also a parallel to what we saw at the very beginning of the wilderness wanderings in Exodus 17. Israel grumbles about the water. Then they are attacked by another tribe, the Amalekites, mm. and then they're saved by Moses interceding and lifting, oh, lifting up his, his hands. hands. Yeah. And so right here, what do they do? They pray, and they're given victory over battle after the grumbling in the water. So it's the same thing, yep. but with a new generation. It's the same pattern, but it's also a preview that this might be, like, yep. this new generation is like the beginning of the wilderness watering. Oh, right. It's like... It's restarting. Yes, it's re- the whole pattern's restarting. Yep. If they could, and, and and then it's also foreshadowing the future, where it's like if they could win this battle against the Canaanites, maybe they could take the whole land. Yeah, it's a preview of the Book of Joshua. Yes, which is coming up. Yes, yeah, yeah. but the uh, the good times don't last very long. Um, no. Something were, something is about to happen with the older generation. And remember, what we saw ever since Miriam is the slow decay of the last generation. The, the leaders mm-hmm. of the old generation are passing away. They're dying. New leaders are being risen up. The new generation is having victories and battles just like the old generation did at the beginning of the wilderness right. waterings. And this is kind of like the final stroke against the old generation. Okay, so the final stroke against the old generation. Second to last. Second to last, sorry. Yep. Second to last. There's one more after Balaam. Um, what ends up happening is that they complain again. They say... <laughs> You brought us out of the wilderness, out of Egypt to die in the yeah. wilderness. And notice, who are they complaining against? Not just Moses and Aaron this time. But this God. is one of the first times they go straight to God. Mm. And they are complaining against God himself. Which makes sense if you have the intercessors are dying. Like yeah. Aaron's dead. Miriam's dead. Moses, they probably see as incompetent. So they just go straight to God yep. without thinking they need an intercessor. Right. And uh, they basically repeat what they said earlier on in the book of... Yeah, it's Israel's greatest hits all over again. <laughs> they just keep repeating them. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Yeah. And they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. So these these fiery serpents, which fiery is probably just a, a descriptor to the feeling of the poison mm. going into your veins. I heard there's like an ambiguity in the, in the Hebrew. There is. So that some, some people think that Moses should have made... A statue of the flame. Oh, and, and, the not, fire and not, of, a not serpent. a serpent. Was Interesting. That, that's funny. Then also made me think fiery serpents like the seraphim in heaven. Oh, yes. Because right. seraphim is just a snake. A, it's a snake. Yep. So, like, there's a holy snake in heaven praising the Lord. So, yeah. I wondered, like, if the, anyway. Oh, I wonder yeah. if there's a connection to that here. That maybe the, these are even divine judgers coming down right. to judge. Just like he did, uh, like, the, the angel of death uh-huh. you know, against the. And the, the one Egyptians. that barred them from the. 
um, entrance back into the garden, the 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 ch- cherubim the, with the a cher- sword. Cherubim with a yep. sword. So yeah. it's like God uses his divine messengers and his holy council of spiritual beings to come yeah. and do work on earth. And we just dropped something crazy. Like there's like <laughs> divine snakes in heaven, like like holy fiery snakes worshiping the Lord in heaven. There is research to back that up. Uh, but <laughs> I just learned about it. Like it's on coins. Yeah. In ancient Mesopotamia, you can find coins with like angelic snakes. That's weird. And part of the reason people believe that in Eden the snake was a snake was because he was a fallen seraphim right. from the courts of heaven that used to praise God. Right. Anyway. Yeah. There's a lot of crazy stuff. There's there. a lot. Of, yeah. there's a, that's just a taste for something yes. later. And then uh, while we're talking about the words, the word um, snake sounds a lot like the word bronze in oh. in Hebrew. Okay. Okay. And so it's kind of a play on words there too, where it's like there's a, this serpent and then it's the bronze serpent, right. it's kind of like a double entendre. And what you're talking about there is the fact that the way that this the people will be saved from the curse, of the, from the poison, mm-hmm. is by Moses crafting a bronze serpent, right. lifting it up in the middle of the camp, and all who look to the bronze serpent will be saved. Right. And so, yeah, God, and this was God-ordained, like, right? Isn't it, isn't, didn't God tell him to make this? Yep, he did. Yeah, he okay, did. So, so God says, like, Okay, th- these people have repented publicly. Yeah. Like this is a corporate repentance. We have sinned against the Lord. Yeah. So help us. We we're all dying. Yeah. But then God says, "Okay, great. Make a bronze serpent." And then when people look to it, then individually, then yeah. they will be they will be healed and yeah. rescued from, di- from and death. And this isn't an idol. So some people think like Moses was wrong to do this. But right. no, God right. intended this. This mm-hmm. wasn't an idol. Although later on... It becomes one. Yeah, in Second Kings Is it Hezekiah 18, that does sec- this? I don't know. Second Kings 18, I don't know his reference. Okay. 18-4. Yeah, one of the kings of Israel ends up taking this out. I think it's Hezekiah. I think, anyway, yeah, yeah. ends up taking this, this bronze serpent out of... Um, is it in the temple? I guess so. He takes it out and gets rid of it because it had become an idol. People started worshiping it as an image of God that could save them apart from God himself. Right. And so like what was meant to be a symbol (laughs) uh, of faith became a, uh, I don't know, an idol of like, I mean. That is interesting. Yeah, it's, I'm trying, I'm trying, there's things I want to say right now. Like what? What do you want to say, David? Well, it's just controversial things. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Well, I think so. Let's let's talk about. So, why would you make a bronze serpent? Like, why oh is, yes, why is that the response? Yes. Okay. So, I love this question okay. because the reason is, and apparently, this was in the ancient Near East. Oh, I can't. I got to remember the name of it. It was like, uh, oh, I can't remember it. Dang it! I read it this morning. But there's this thing in the ancient Near East where if you say, let's say, for instance, you were actually bitten by a real. Right. snake out in the wilderness yeah, yeah, okay yeah. you were bitten by a snake you would come and you would look at the image of a snake oh yeah and it was supposed to like counteract it it was like uh you know like what is it in math whenever you have two things that cross cancel each other out it's kind of like that thing subtraction no <laughs> no <laughs> like denominators and something with fractions? fractions yeah it's like there's this thing that cancels each other it, it's in that. algebra anyway okay anyway it's like it's Neither supposed to of us are math people no <laughs> it's like a double negative it cancels it out okay, and okay, so okay. there's this thing and so um that's kind of what's happening here is that you need the um the thing that poisoned you is the hmm. thing that can save you. Fascinating. Okay. okay. That's important because when we get to Jesus and he uses this, and we'll right. get into it more here in a second, but I'll just make this one point, which is is that the sin that actually was going to kill us, that was going to bring death to us, he experienced it. 
Yeah. And so it's a one for one thing. It's right, an right, eye for right. eye thing. It's yeah. we had the poison of these fiery snakes in us, so we had to look to some something that was a fiery poisonous snake. And like so anyway, that's kind of the reason yeah. why it had to be it's like it was come it was kind of expected that this was the cure. Yes. But it never on this scale. No. And I'm assuming most of the time that probably didn't work. And yeah, it did not work. It's like yeah. you need anti-venom. Yes. You don't <laughs> you don't need to look yeah. at a picture of a snake. God was repurposing a cultural practice to show that he was actually better than it. To yes. show that he could do something that the cultural practices never could. Mm. Yeah. And that he's actually powerful over these things. Because most likely I mean, it's not, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I happen to think these weren't normal snakes. Fiery snakes. Yeah, I think these were. These might have been holy snakes. Holy, holy snakes. Holy snakes! <laughs> holy snakes, Batman! <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, yeah, so that's, uh, that. maybe that's one reason why it's a bronze serpent. Was there something else you wanted to get at with that question? Well, I think, too, it's it's a symbol of their punishment. It's like a symbol of their sin. Like, yeah. they have poison running through their veins. And so they must look to the the poison yeah. <laughs> in order to be saved. So I think it's it's kind of the same point. Right. And I think that's kind of the point that John picks up in John 3. Yes. So, yeah, this is the famous story of Jesus talking to Nicodemus, uh, who was one of the Pharisees. And uh, this is this is right before, right, the, the famous, the most famous passage in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is right before John 3.16. Right. So what does it say? It says, oh, I'm not looking at it. Oh, I thought you were. You had your phone out. Okay. I was, I was looking at my Devo for this. Oh, okay. Here, I've, I've got it. I've got it here. Let's see here. It is, what verse is it? Oh, here it is. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from he- heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Yeah. Anytime in the book of John, that Jesus talks about himself being lifted up. He is talking about what is to come in his crucifixion when he is literally raised yeah. up on the cross and killed. Yeah. And so he's saying, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be raised up on a cross like that bronze serpent was raised up. Yep. And anyone who looks to me with the eyes of faith will be saved from their sin and death because I will have borne it for them. Just like yeah. it happened for Israel in the and wilderness. And think about who Nicodemus was. He was mm. a member of the Jewish people. Right. And he was denying the miracles of Jesus. Oh, he was yeah. this unspiritual person who couldn't see the truth. And Jesus calls him out for being an unspiritual person a couple different times in that oh, passage. Yep. Yeah, right. And what God tells Moses to do is to make a bronze snake and lift it up. And anyone who looks at it will be saved. Yeah. Nicodemus, sh- I think, should know that there's like this God denying like poison in his veins. Mm. He should expect that in order for that to, him to be saved from it, his f- sin is going to have to be made flesh and lifted up so that when you look at it, mm. you are saved. And we have a text where it says, he who knew no sin became sin right. so that we might become the righteousness of God. Mm. So there is this truth where God becomes our sin right. in the same way that the snake becomes the, like, the symbol of, the, of Israel's sin. Yeah. And when you look to the symbol of your sin, you are saved. Wow. And what's crazy is that we look at a text like this and that God must have hated Israel. Mm. But this is said in the same passage in the book of John where Jesus says, I came to love the world. I don't hate the world. I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save it. Jesus didn't come to judge and condemn Israel or us. He doesn't want us to writhe in our unbelief. 
He's become flesh so when he was lifted up on the cross, we could look to him and not perish, yeah. but have eternal life yeah. in the promised land. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I think it's also cool how Jesus escalates the promise of the snake, right? Because it's not only that the, when they look to the snake, the poison went away. Like right. they would be saved yeah. from dying right then. Yeah. But everyone from the older generation was still going to die. They were still under a punishment. You know, uh, and here though, like you like you just said, anyone who believes in Jesus has eternal life, yeah, in an eternal promised land. And, and then I also think about the the text you referenced, where it's like, "He who knew no sin became sin." And yeah. what's the rest of that? So that we might become the righteousness of God. And so not only like is the our bro- sin taken yeah, away is the sin is taken the poison away, drained. We actually get something new and better. Israel just had the bad taken away. They didn't get anything good in return. Yeah. We also get the righteousness of God. It's not that we are brought back to net zero and we're just healthy yeah. people and we have to not mess up again or the snakes are coming back. The we are actually made the righteousness of God. Like propitiation. Right. And, uh, oh, what's the other one? Justification. And justification. Yeah. Like the wrath of God is taken away. It's propitiated. It's propitiated. That's what happens here. The yes. wrath of God is taken away. But in Jesus, not only is the wrath of God propitiated, we are also justified. Right. We are declared right. righteous. Yeah. We are declared the new generation yes. who can enter into God's rest. It's amazing. I love that story. Um, and so then after that, are you done? Are you done there? I'm done. Okay. I'm done. There's, we could probably keep going on that, but it's it's a beautiful text. I just love it. Anytime that Jesus does our work for us in the Spoken Gospel podcast, it's really a beautiful it's thing. A beautiful moment. It's just like... Anyway, it's also one of the fundamental texts right. for why we do this yes. is because Jesus is able to look at this obscure story. It's only, how, how many verses is this? Uh, five. It's like five verses and it's weird. It and Jesus weird. like, that's me. That's and like, me. that's what we're doing in this podcast is just going like, you can do this with every text if you do it yeah. responsibly. Right. But like, you can do it in every text. Anyway, and so then we get um, some more victories Right? More victories in battle. battle. Um, and there's songs being sung as they do it. Mm-hmm. It's like it should feel different. Like, Very different. There's poems, there's yep. songs being it's like it's not like anything you've read so far because this new generation is new. Yes. You should expect it to look different. And so they start winning these battles. Yep. So uh, they went against Sihon and they went against Og. Uh, and that kind of brings us to the end of this chapter before we meet Balaam. There, yeah, and one thing that you should, verse 26. Mm. So they come to Heshbon, and they destroy it, and they beat it. And there's this, like, proviso. There's, like, this justification for their actions of verse 26. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king mm. of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Yeah. So this is this, should, this is important, right? Because Moab were were the descendants of Lot, and Israel was told you cannot take any of Moab's land. Like this land is protected because God is keeping His covenant for people that are not are not necessarily from Israel. Right. But it's okay for them to take this land because it was taken by the king of the Amorites mm-hmm. and it no longer belongs to Moab. And so he's really, it's really like strange that he adds this like proviso, this clarification, this justification, because what he's doing is Balaam is about to come and he's about to curse Israel. Yep. On he's behalf to, of the Moabites. Yeah, he's about to curse them right, on behalf of the Moabites. Right. And what this is doing is saying, no, 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 no. They were actually justified in doing so. Like Balaam, the Moabites might be justified in cursing him if the Mo- this land actually belonged to the Moabites. Right. But it doesn't. Mm-hmm. They were just in taking it. And what I thought about this, I was like, what's fascinating to me is like God keeps his promises and he mm. keeps his law. Yeah. 
Like, I think when I think about like Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament laws, it's like, oh, they're just different. Like, oh, we sure. get a free pass. Like, God, you know, it's like, they're just different now. Like, we don't have to think about them. Like, we don't have to, like, do the t- precise mathematical equations. But, like, you see here, like, God is being faithful to his law mm. in circumstance very um, particularly. Yeah. Like, you were not supposed to take that land, but it was taken over by somebody else. So now that you're allowed to take oh, it. Oh, I see. Yeah. The law is fulfilled. Yep. You can now go and take the land. Mm. I was like, man. Even I, on a geopolitical scale. Right. God is obeying his own law. Right. Or it takes me back to like the mistrial of the woman caught in adultery. Oh, right. It's not that she hasn't sinned. It's that the Pharisees are following the incorrect court procedures. And right. so he says the trial must be thrown out. Right. He's not letting an innocent party go. Right. He's saying you're not trying or failing. Yeah, fairly. You, you didn't follow the law. Right. You didn't follow the law. The other thing to point out here in this, um, in this, uh, why, why does Moses bring this up about the uh, about the, the, the Amorites and the Moabites and all this yeah. stuff? Uh, is because it, there's also a statement here about how powerful the God of Israel is whenever he fights with Israel. Mm, yeah. Because they they said that 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 um, the God of the Amorite or you know the, the people of the Amorites they went and they took over all of Moab. So Am- the Amorites are stronger than the Moabites, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then Israel, and then you read this long song. There's a there's a war song in here that's not an Israelite ballad. It's a it's an Amorite ballad, and it talks it praises the strength of the Amorites, and it talks about how they're so much stronger than Moab, and they're just so buff, and they're so swole. And and then what happens is that it's all ironic because Israel beats them. Right. Verse thirty four. Do not fear them. For I have given him into your hand. Right, and so it doesn't matter how strong they are; they're they're much bigger and badder. Right, and so it's just it's just also supposed to amplify the fact that Israel's taking some of the strongest nations that are annexing their neighbors. Israel, this wandering people group that should be starved and anemic in the wilderness, right. is able to go in and take nations that are like conquering the world. And think about just from like the Moabites' perspective. So there's this group of about 2 million people, and they've been dying off mm-hmm. for an entire generation. They've been wandering for 40 years. They're getting weaker and weaker. The old guard's leaving. You have this new people who know nothing but like a desert existence. Who are the least likely people you expect to win a battle? <laughs> right. It's these guys. Yeah. These aren't these people shouldn't be a threat to you. Mm. And yet here they come taking down the, the biggest bad guys yep. of their time. And why? Not because they're the strongest but because the Lord has given over these people into their hand. Right. And it also kind of cues up the next story, which will be the Moabite king going to Balaam and asking him to curse Israel because he's terrified of them. Because he's like, yeah. man, the Amorites came in here and they kicked our butts. So the underdog the, uh, is yeah. a lot better than we thought it was going to be. And <laughs> now the Israelites beat the Amorites who beat us already. Right. So they are going to rock our world. But maybe if we get the spiritual world involved and we we yeah, condemn yeah. them, then we can win. So we'll look at that next week. And it's one of my, it's it's the high point of the book of Numbers. Um, when a, when a, a pagan prophet, when a pagan prophet comes and, and says, tries to curse Israel, yeah, it's so good. I love that story. So, so we'll look at that next week. How do we see yes. Jesus in successive conquests by the new generation? It's a great question that you've asked yourself there, Seth. <laughs> I would love to hear how you would answer that. I mean, I think the the easiest thing we see here. I mean, obviously, it's a foreshadowing of the book of Joshua. Oh yes, and their enemy even like devote to destruction. There's all sorts of language that's used here in Numbers that gets like picked it. up in Joshua. But I think what ultimately how we see Jesus fulfill this is, well, one, in the Great Commission, well, what Jesus, what Jesus says to Pilate, mm. my kingdom is not of this world. Right. Because if it was, 
my people would fight to secure my release. But right. my kingdom is from another place. So we do know that Jesus has a kingdom and that has a sphere of authority. Right. But it's not won by military victory. Mm-hmm. And we know this because of the Great Commission where he says, you will go and spread my kingdom to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, reversing the same the imploding stars, headed right. back outwards again. Mm-hmm. And we also know this from the book of Revelation because one of the last acts of Jesus is to come and to destroy the works, uh, the the nations arrayed against his people. Right. With the word, the the word that comes from his mouth. Yeah, not some physical sword. It is just by the word of his mouth that he crushes all enemy kingdoms. And I wonder if that word is, "You have been given into my hand. Mm. You are in my hand." It's the same words he used right here. It's like I have given them into your hand, and we know wow. that all principalities and powers have been given over to Jesus. Right. And the sword that comes from Jesus's mouth is, "You are mine," and the battle's over. Yeah, it's a beautiful picture to think about that. With, I mean. And, and it's going to mean something different to every single person, no matter, you know, depending on where they live yeah. and their own geopolitical situation. Right. You know, it's going to mean something different to Americans living in a Trump America. Right. It's going to mean something different to someone. What does it mean to <laughs> someone living per- in like an oppressed, you know, like an oppressed What does it mean government? for people like Israel? So if you, if there are multiple uh, people groups who are oppressed by their regimes or they are nomadic, mm-hmm. they're refugees in another land, and they're looking for a homeland. Like, what does this tell people who have no home mm. and are looking for one? Yeah. What, is, what does this tell you? Like, I'm asking you that question. Oh, you're asking like, me like, that question. Like, as you meditate, like, the, the first application of this text is to people who have no homeland right. and who are trying to gain one. Yeah. It's what does the- Jesus' <laughs> final, like, final coming tell us, give them hope for? Like, what is it? Well, it's that like, I'm going to give you a land that you could not get for yourself. I mean, I'm going to bring you peace. I'll give you rest. I mean, that's what it would say to me is that like, even though you can't earn it for yourself, even though you, your parents and your, and yourself have done everything to disqualify you from it, I am going to come to you and build my kingdom where you are, despite the right. enemies that are around you. Yeah. Your home doesn't need to be bounded by a border. Mm-hmm. Your home is where I am. Yeah. And I will route all enemies. Like if you're like faithful where you are, I will route all enemies on your behalf and you will be home. Yeah. You'll be in my presence. And I, I love yeah, I love that. The presence of God as your home. And isn't that what's happening here as they walk through the wilderness with the presence of God in the tabernacle? Yeah. God is God is saying when Jesus returns, right? We we Jesus comes out of heaven mm-hmm. and we, we're told that there's no longer any temple. Yeah. Because the whole world is God's temple. And so what was conti- what was contained and confined in a tent in numbers, but that was like traveling around the world yeah. and it was it was kind of being in different places one at a time, ends up permeating the whole earth and making the whole world his dwelling. Yeah. Um, yeah. And th- if you are a part of an oppressed people group, one day your enemies will be destroyed. Yes. There are evil people doing evil things to people all over the world. And even in America, there are evil people oppressing innocent people all over the world. Yes. And what this text tells us that Jesus wins. There's coming a day when he will ride on his horse Mm -hmm. and he will destroy all enemies, people that have hurt you, people that have abused you, people that have enslaved you, people that have oppressed you. They will be done away with. So much so that the blood of his, like the, his garment yes, covered in blood, covered in blood. Yeah. 
And so one, I think that's probably the blood of his enemies, yep. like a metaphorical picturing of the defeat of the enemies. But also, I think it's his own blood. Right. That's why we're not destroyed is because he's covered in his own blood, not How ours. How will Jesus make sure that all your enemies are destroyed is when he's killed himself. Yeah. And so it, it does, it gives such hope. I mean, I just, I, you, you try, it, it helps me too when I think about like, how am I going to wrap my brain around everything that's happening in this world from sex trafficking to um, child warfare in Africa to, like, I mean, all these insane things that are happening in the world, nuclear weapons. It's like, yeah. well, the biggest bad guy out there that you could imagine who has war ballads sung about him because he's the strongest baddie on the planet yeah. is nothing compared to the God of Israel. Think of like all those North Korean military de- yeah. demonstrations where they just prayed their entire army. Right. And the Lord just says, I have given you into my hand. Yeah. <laughs> like, he who I, sits uh, in heaven laughs. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's nothing. Yeah. So anyway, numbers, numbers 20 and 21. <laughs> there it is. So um, Seth, on behalf of myself and all of our spoken gospel listeners, I bid you farewell from this podcast studio. I'll be in a basement somewhere in Kansas City. <laughs> With your own podcast gear, we'll FaceTime while we while we do so these we from now on. The, the interact, the yeah, banter. and uh, and so it's been awesome. Fifty episodes here 50 in the episode. studio. We want to. I want to do like a live one hundredth episode. That would be fun. That would be a lot of fun. That would be a lot of fun. So anyway, well, uh, next week we will take a look at um, Balaam, which yeah. is a great story. And um, so yeah, thank you guys for listening. Fifty episodes in. Um, if you haven't yet, go on and rate us. It Please. helps us a lot. We have, we're up to 42 ratings and still five stars. So yeah, yeah, maybe yeah, keep yeah. that going, guys. That's we pretty great. We would love that. Leave us so, a comment yep. because I read all the comments. It makes us feel warm and fuzzy. It does. So anyway, really appreciate you guys, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Spoken Gospel is a nonprofit dedicated to creating free, gospel-centered media that speaks the gospel out of every corner of Scripture. So to join us in our mission and view our resources, we invite you to visit SpokenGospel.com. Spoken Gospel.